Hi everyone, I am Samantha Erskine. Welcome to episode four of the Imelda Foundation's Cafecito podcast. In this podcast, we speak with Daisy Auger Dominguez, a director of global diversity and inclusion at Google. Daisy shares what it's like to work for Google, the framework behind the company's diversity and inclusion initiatives, and how one could become a diversity and inclusion professional. She also shares tips on how to network effectively, build professional relationships, and manage stress to avoid burnout. We are so grateful that Daisy could share some of her time with us, given how busy she is. You'll hear her email notifications buzzing away throughout our conversation. If you are interested in working in the diversity and inclusion space, thinking about transitioning careers generally, or trying to find an optimal work-life integration, you will definitely be inspired by what Daisy shares in this episode. The song you're listening to is called Struggle by Joel Masakote and Ritmo Masakote. It's composed and arranged by Joel Masakote and produced by Masakote Entertainment. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Let's get ready for the show. Daisy, welcome and thank you for joining us today. I am a fan of yours and I've known you for some time now, so I'm so glad that you have joined us. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to be here and, uh, and I'm equally a fan of, your, of yours and your work. Thank you. Could you tell everybody a little bit about you? Where are you from? Uh, well, I, am, uh, I, I was born in New York City, but I was raised in the Dominican Republic. So my identity formation is, is, is a bit uh, unique in that I identify very strongly as being Dominican. My mother's also Puerto Rican, so I am, I'm half Dominican and Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Um, but my identity formation uh, from age 3 to 16 all took place in the Dominican Republic. Um, and so my, my center, where I, where I draw from, is, uh, is, is, comes from that island and, and the experiences that I had growing up. Um, I moved to the States when I was a junior in high school. Uh, to um, get ready for college. Uh, mm-hmm. I, when I was in the Dominican Republic, I learned English and went to an international school because the intent had always been that I would come to the U.S. Uh, to go to university because I was going to be a professional in my <laughs> grandmother's <laughs> terminology. And, um, and so I moved to New Jersey when I was 16, uh, finished high school there, and um, then went to Bucknell University in Pennsylvania for my undergrad mm-hmm. work and then NYU for graduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, following graduate work, I did a fellowship in public affairs, the Coral Fellows Program, which was uh, game-changing uh, for me. Um, and following that, I began my career, um, 12 years at Moody's Investor Service, uh, then went uh, on to move to Time Warner in their executive search um, diversity function, uh, then went on to Disney um, to head up talent acquisition and diversity and inclusion. I actually went to Disney to initially head up diversity and inclusion and when our head of talent acquisition left, I, I took on both roles. And uh, about two years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to come to Google and to be at the center of uh, this uh, disruptive industry of technology. So I took a chance, and, uh, and here I am. What a great story and what a great journey. What's it like working for Google? I mean, you know, everybody would die to work for Google, and you have the dream job. So what's it like on a day-to-day basis? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's as, it's as magical and wonderful as everybody thinks. And it's also as hard and challenging as, as any job could be. Mm-hmm. Um, Google is, uh, it's, it's, it's impressive in its ability to, um, create space for innovation, um, and, and moonshot thinking as we call it, um, you know, high level thinking, you are surrounded by really the smartest people. In, in class, so when you you know when when you're when you're growing up, you always know who the two or three smartest people are in the class, the people that you want to hang out with. Well, they're all here at Google. <laughs> they're all they're all surrounding you every day, which means that there's a lot of ideation happening all the time, and there's just a lot of really great work being done. That also means that it's challenging to be in, in an organization with all high achievers, um, all folks who are constantly creating and building and doing. Um, and, and that comes with its own set of challenges. It's, um, 
it, it is it is inspiring. Um, yesterday we had um, I was in LA yesterday for a panel around the uh, Hispanic Latinx identity, and um, it's part of a decoding race series that we launched, and mm-hmm. we've done around six or so of them. We'll do ten uh, by the end of the series, and um, I think in another month or so. Um, but that series came about. Uh, as a result of the racial violence that we experienced in the U.S. last summer, and and employees really putting the company to task about who we wanted to be and what values we, you know, how, how much we wanted to make sure that we were supporting the company values because Google was a company that was formed um, to create and innovate and to you know organize. Certainly, our mission is to organize the world's information, um, but in our founding letter. Our founders wrote, "Do no harm, do no evil." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're we're a company that's that's formed on these strong set of values about doing good um, and creating universal accessibility. Um, and and yet, um, as with any organization, you know, cultural challenges happen. And last summer, um, mostly our black employees, but really a coalition of employees across Google. Um, put the company to task and said, we need to we need to do something about race. We need to talk about it. We need mm-hmm. to build racial muscle in the organization. Um, and we need to raise awareness about how this impacts all of our employees. Um, and so uh, the, the Decoding Race Series and other um, initiatives came out from that. And that, that I believe, can only happen at, at a Google, at the pace and at the level. Other companies are doing this, and I know a lot of my peers who are having these conversations in other companies. Um, but I, don't, I haven't seen the same urgency, the same volume, um, and the same employee-driven efforts, everything is very grassroots uh, at Google because there's such a sense of transparency, mm-hmm. and it's built on everybody has a voice. Everyone's every everyone owns you know everyone's an owner at Google, um, and that that's a culture that's that's very much supported, um, and so that makes it exciting and um, and energizing, and and then it, and it also makes it challenging to manage sixty thousand plus folks that are all doing this. Right, still <laughs> have. A lot of challenges uh, to overcome there. Um, when I think about this work, I think about it in um, in three areas. It begins with the will to want to do this work, um, and 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 that's not. I don't say that in the in the way of like you're a bad person if you don't have the will to to do diversity or to talk about race. Um, but simply, like, does it show up for you? Do you even think of it as something that's that's important to you? Um, and and we've done some work at at Google around. Even reshaping the way that we tell our stories and, and that we share our data. Um, and by the way, you know, I've been doing this diversity and inclusion work for about 10 years or so. And this is the first time, and this was, and I attribute this highly to uh, a, um, a racial um, expert that we hired in the company who works for us internally, who really pushed us to present data differently. Um, and in the past, in most companies, you know, you're in, in heavy risk mitigation uh, or so you, you have to be really worried about what information you share and how you share because it can be misinterpreted, it can be misapplied. Um, we've been sharing data around our employee surveys for the first time this year across the whole planet. So we're sharing data for uh, race and gender. And we're sharing data not just for black and Latinos, which is usually the way that it gets presented, but we're sharing the data for white and Asian as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we want to show is if there is a segment of the community that's not doing well, Interestingly, there's a segment of the community that's doing really well. Right. And the segment of the community that's doing really well, when you see only the data for black or Latino, it, it, it's not about you. It's kind of like, oh, that kind of sucks that they're not doing really well, but, you know, and I'm a good person, and that's, that's a shame, but I don't see myself in that. Mm-hmm. When, you start to, when you see yourself on that graph and you say, wait a second, I'm, a, I'm over here on the right, and my, my colleagues are on the left, there's a huge chasm between us. Mm-hmm. Our experiences are not the same. I have a responsibility to change that. I have a responsibility to, whether it's by lending my privilege, whether it's by talking about power, whether it's just simply by building more proximity, I can do something. And so we've, we've, we've been tackling that will piece um, through the way that we're telling our stories and sharing and, and, and enabling folks to think um, differently about their place and their role in supporting this work. The second piece of it is skill. Not everyone's skilled at doing this. Um, you know, we're still meeting folks, and we saw a quote today, we're still meeting folks who have never engaged with black people in their entire lives, um, who have never engaged with brown people in their entire lives, um, who are still grappling with 
What's the language that I use? Um, we're still grappling with the stories that they heard growing up about people of color, about differently abled people that, that shape their perception. And so as good as they can be, they're still struggling with those skills. So a lot of the work that we're doing is how do we help people build that muscle, that racial muscle, that um, social awareness muscle, that intersectional muscle to really start thinking about that. And then the third piece of it is sort of around fragmentation, uh, the fact that this you know, diversity and inclusion work and any work in a company can, can tend to be really fragmented, particularly at a company like Google where, like I said earlier, everybody owns everything. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Joe Schmo today and I think that we're not doing a good enough job in fighting the executive orders for, uh, you know, Trump. So I'm going to create an immigration initiative and I'm going to build a tech tool around it and I'm going to start getting my folks around it. And all of a sudden you've got all this energy um, over here, but we've got an amazing policy team in D.C. who is doing all this great advocacy and work, and they're not, they're not connected to this work. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by the fragmentation is, like, how do we help amplify the work that we're doing so that there's, there's room and place for everyone to have a different voice, because that's the perfect diversity experiment, is that everybody has an opportunity to share their experience, but that we're also kind of walking in tandem, like, together towards that goal. Um, and so I think I think I think that's that's where I see the biggest challenges, not just for Google but for every company. And I think for for Google, we have what's different for us is that we have mechanisms that we've created since we started. And I mean, we're an 18 year old company. We're a teenager still. Can't believe it's been 18 years, by the way. Yeah, it, I mean, we've been using Google for 18 years. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but but you know, we've got mechanisms that have been created to help us be a little bit more agile with employee activity and engagement um, than other companies. Um, we, we still, you know, we have, you know, risk mitigation and compliance pieces that we need to abide by like, like anybody else. Um, but, I, but because we still have a sense of, and, and by the way, we're a 60,000 employee company now, so we're no longer a startup, but we also have this startup mentality mm -hmm. still in many pockets of the company, which is just like, we're going to be scrappy and do this. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to, in good and bad, <laughs> right, um, do things that I think for other companies, the hierarchies and the levels of decision-making still um, are slowing down the process. You have had quite a journey. For people who look up to you, who want to maybe have a job in diversity and inclusion or to work for Google, what would be some lessons that you would share in terms of how they could find a job that would be similar to yours? Um, you know, it's interesting because I... I your story always seems more linear when you tell it <laughs> than, how it, than how it truly was. I couldn't tell you 10 plus years ago that I was going to be where I am right now. Um, and so I, I, um, I'm, I'm, usually, I'm, I'm usually one of those people that don't have those two or three things that you should do. You know, my friends like Tiffany Dufu and others are really fantastic yes. at that. You know, they, they write great books about it. Right. Um, I, um, I think what's, what's, um, What's helped me stand out and what's helped me make um, the moves that I've made have been characterized by really foundational things. It's, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's about hard work. Um, and the early part of your career is building strong technical skills. And, and I didn't know that at the time, but I was building strong technical skills that became a really strong foundation for the work that I'm doing now. So when I was a credit risk analyst, I, was, I tried to be the best credit risk analyst I was. When I was managing our foundation at uh, Moody's, I, I learned everything that I wanted to around um, the corporate foundation and philanthropy world. Um, and then when I, when, I, um, when I started my career in diversity and inclusion, which, which frankly, when I started my career in diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion had been around for a long time already, um, you know, 10 plus years already into me starting my career. Um, but I it was still not widely known as it is now as an actual career and, and, you know, these wide functions in companies and there were still sort of hidden functions in, uh, in organizations. Um, and I, um, I did what I, what I've done my whole life. I just did a lot of research. I learned a lot and I built a really strong network of mentors and colleagues who were doing the space. I picked up the phone because, you know, um, Back then, Google wasn't around, um, and uh, and I picked up the phone and called colleagues and companies, and you know, when I went to conferences, found out who was doing diversity and inclusion, and really just reached out to people, um, set up coffees, uh, set up uh, you know informationals, and and started building really what I think genuine relationships um, with folks that I could learn a whole lot from, and that I could eventually reciprocate in kind with you know intelligence I was gathering and connections I was making. Um, 
And, um, and so it was, so I would say that it's really around, you know, that, that work ethic and that, that understanding the, the entire scope of what I, what I was working on uh, for good or bad. I like to, I look at things from a very macro perspective. Um, and so while I was a great, uh, credit risk analyst, I think I, I had a great career in that space. I, I never, for me, it wasn't enough to just look at the number on the screen that I was looking at. I always wanted to get a sense of the broader ecosystem with, within which that fit. Um, and, and I think that's, that's done me well because I'm able to craft stories and influence thinking in broader ways than precisely what, what I'm supposed to be you know, sort of looking at. Um, that can also uh, be challenging because um, uh, sometimes you just want you know, someone who can tell you, you know, one or two things about, about something. Um, and, and I think that in the early part of your career, like I said, it, it's really important for you to build your technical skills and be really good at that, you know, two to three things that you're supposed to deliver. And as you start moving through your career, it's expanding on your worldview and that ecosystem of how this work intersects, because that's where you find opportunities. That's where you find solutions that no one's thinking about. Mm -hmm. That's where you find connections that no one's considering. Um, so that, that kind of thinking, um, I think has helped me uh, along the way. The other piece has been just a general sense of curiosity. And, and that gets defined really differently um, at different stages of your career. Um, but my curiosity is what's drawn me to other industries. It's what's drawn me to, to other roles and functions and, uh, and spaces that don't seem natural uh, right away, but that eventually do. So, you know, I went from being a credit risk analyst to working for a corporate foundation to working um, in, uh, in diversity and inclusion and, and human resources to working in executive search to doing talent acquisition, all along common threads of diversity and inclusion, all along common threads of community empowerment and access and opportunity because those are all pieces that are near and dear to my heart, um, but, but not always in the most traditional forms. And, and I don't, that's not for everyone. Um, and that, that just simply is, is the, the general curiosity that drives me. Um, and, and then finally, I think it's, uh, it's just having a strong, um, a strong understanding of who you are and what drives you. Um, I, I, I can't tell you when it happens for me. Um, but, but I've always been driven by a, a deep sense of responsibility and a deep sense of, um, wanting to honor my family and, 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 I, and I think of my family in a very extended way. So there's my immediate family who I, who I adore, who raised me, who you know, done everything for my life. And then there's a, this extended family of friends and mentors and colleagues who are, you know, you know, who are also dear to me and who are, who are part of my heart and who I carry with me everywhere. And so I, I, I have this sense of where I am, I need to be doing good and I need to be moving the needle forward, not just for me, for my own personal ego, but because other people did this for me. So I'm opening doors because other people opened those doors for me. And whether, I can't say my parents opened doors for me because my parents were not in corporate America. So they, this isn't an experience that they even know what to do with, but the doors that they opened for me were by providing the best education that they could provide for me, mm -hmm. was by pushing me to make sure that I went to university and, you know, and that, that I pursued my studies. Um, throughout work, the mentors that I've had, the bosses that I've had, who have created space and um, you know and um, and an agency for me to be able to find my voice and to do and, and to do me the way you know the way I come into this world. And so I um, I, I often I was asked recently um, how did I feel about I was moderating this Latino panel and, and I was asked it's like how do you feel about I always have to you know have to do all the Latino panels because there's not that many Latino mm -hmm. senior leaders. And I said, you know what, it's, it's a lot of work. I'm not going to deny it, but it's, it's my responsibility because I've had tremendous opportunities that have allowed me to be where I am right now. And what I do is so that behind me, everyone that, that there's, there's, no, there's not just going to be a daisy the next time that there's a panel. There's going to be tons of Latinos and Latinas that you're going to be able to draw from because of the work that I'm doing, because of the work that we're all trying to draw. And so to me, it's not a burden as much as an opportunity and a responsibility to be able to recognize that opportunity. One of the things that I appreciate the most about you, Daisy, is that you've always been very accessible and you are authentic and transparent and you are, you like, you're real. But I think a lot of times people could be intimidated to reach out to someone who's been doing it because that person is not 
as welcoming as you are. So how did you navigate and build relationships given how this landscape is? Like, how did you, because that's important, right? Networking and building relationships. How did you do it? Um, it, 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 it takes finesse and, um, and persistence um, and, you know, and a real strong, um, not just a strong sense of who you are, but a strong understanding of where people are coming from. Um, so part of the reason why I'm so accessible um, and I admit it, and sometimes, you know, to my own detriment, because, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I exhaust myself. Um, it's because, like I said earlier, it's, you know, it's that, it's that sense of responsibility, but also because I do believe that we need to share knowledge and, and that we need to share. It. And I, when I started my career, nobody gave me a book that said, this is how things get done at Moody's. <laughs> this is how, you know, this is how you build relationship. This is how you seek out mentors. This is how you seek out. And so I had to take those cues uh, from a lot of folks. And a lot of what I try to do is create those shortcuts for people. Um, so what I usually say is you have to understand if, if you're trying to network within an organization, you have to understand the unwritten rules within that organization. How do people engage? And some, um, you know, when I was at Disney, um, I, you know, I quickly learned that you don't go directly to senior leaders. You go through their assistants. Uh, that's how you, that's how you set up coffee. So I became really good friends with everyone's assistant, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they, and, and people sometimes, you know, feel, you know, like these are folks that are sort of like below you and, and not mm -hmm. engaging, but they're incredible gatekeepers and right. knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, and I learned that when I was at, when I was at Moody's and, you know, I was, I was friends with everyone's every, and I was, and, and that was, I was in you know, early stages of learning, but you know, I, I became friends with, with everyone and some of the best intelligence that I gathered would be from those assistants who were in the know on everything that was happening. Um, so I think that um, understanding the, the layers of power is important, but also understanding how information flows mm -hmm. uh, and, and how information is shared is really critical in an organization to start understanding those unwritten rules. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when, and I get this a lot, I get folks that connect with me on LinkedIn or to, or to friends, and um, I, I think it's important to have a personal connection and so when someone connects with me on LinkedIn and it's just like I'd like to get to know you more it's like that's really nice but like I have I just went to a conference last week and I have 50 people that want to get to know me more and I and I connected with them so I feel a sense of responsibility that I owe being able to connect to them before I connect to someone that just out of the blue did that now that's challenging because if you don't have that that opportunity to connect with someone that's hard um so I think that there are clever ways I've seen really as I said I've responded to some really clever LinkedIn uh, request when someone's done research on me and has found something about me that's a connection point and they've shown such effort and such thought that you know I just feel like the last you know that last I, listen I'll give you 15 20 minutes <laughs> I've got this pocket in a couple of months like let's make this happen right. um, so so I think it's also the effort uh, and the astuteness that you show in connecting with folks at their level not at your level but really where they're at um, and, and how genuine that can be. I also have folks that are just, you know, I literally, and this is because of the roles that I've had, they're like, I'm interested in this job. Can you tell me how to do it? I was like, I, I, I don't oh. manage every role in the company. I don't know who you are. Um, you know, that, I have to say, I, I, those will be easily dismissed because, like I said, I have a long list of folks that I have a personal connection with or that have made significant efforts or that honestly have come in through friends of mine. I have a list of um, requirements that I have when I decide to do a speaking engagement and on, and that I share that with my assistant so that you know, she helps me um, call through those requests. And one of them, and I learned this from my good friend Tiffany, one of them is if it, this is coming from a dear friend, I, it's likely not a no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because, I, because it's my way of being able to give back to someone um, that has done something for me or that I care about and, and that I want to um, reciprocate. So, um, so, that, so, so being mindful of that, and sometimes when you're not in the know, I appreciate that it's hard to, to not know that. And so I think that we, we tend to kind of bulldoze our way to try to build relationships, and it's just really hard. And you can get a lot more from uh, from having one and two really deep relationships than from, like, knowing the entire, you know, uh, world of folks in your and you know in the space that you're trying to learn. So I always encourage folks to try and build really genuine connections when they're trying to um, engage with you to leverage to leverage your networks, you know, the seven degrees of separation, um, that's really clever. I'll tell you one way that doesn't work, and, and this is an example of something. I have someone who's been trying to get to me for months, um, and I've let him know already that there, there wasn't anything there, 
you know, that he was that, where he was interested. And he's pushing, he's pushing. And every time he sends me a note, he includes a senior level person that I know on the subject line to remind me that this is the person that I know. And it irritates me so that I've decided to never respond to this person anymore um, because I because I find that they're utilizing someone else's equity and capital uh, in an irresponsible way, and I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me. Um, and so while I don't mind, I'll be the first one when someone tells me, "Oh, I'd like to meet someone," um, and if it's someone that I you know who I believe in and who I want to support, I'll be the first one to say, "You can use my name." Um, let them know that I referred you, or I'll make the introductions. Uh, but I won't do it in a way that's almost somewhat bullying, some, which some folks will do. To be, uh, and, and in their sense, being persistent, um, that's something that's maybe just a pet peeve of mine. But <laughs> that drives me crazy. I can only imagine. I mean, in this age where you know it's really tough to get a job, and people are trying really hard, and they think that if they work really hard or they're really assertive or aggressive, that'll get their job by that kind of effort but it's it's more about the relationships you build and it sounds like there needs to be some education in the the career offices of universities in terms of how to network and so are there a couple of things that you would suggest to young girls today in terms of how to learn how to network yeah you know and it's interesting because that networking piece always comes up um and it's a struggle because um for, for, for many women, and particularly for people of color, you don't have access to those um, circles of power and, and privilege. And so getting an in is usually really challenging. Um, but I do, I, I do encourage folks this, uh, on this networking front. It's good to know a lot of people, but it's really powerful to know two or three key influencers. Um, so, so my recommendation around the networking piece is to invest in getting yourself known and recognized and, you know, and thought of well um, by, by folks who are key influencers and, and thought leaders in space because they can become that bridge towards that company or that organization or that idea that you're trying to connect with versus sort of this whole sense of like, I'm going to go to as many events as possible and connect with everyone. Um, I think it's helpful because it helps you identify the spaces that you're in. But sometimes, you know, I, I and this is my own, Again, my own personal bias. I'll go to these events, and everyone's giving me cards. And at the end, I'm going like, I, I, you know, I just tell people I'm like, connect with me on LinkedIn, or you know, in some cases, I'll give people my email. Um, but I'm not going to be able to, uh, you know, to connect with you. In the early part of my career, here's what I would do: is that I would take cards of those folks that I wanted to connect with, and after every event, I would email those people. I would put in the subject uh, line where I met them, so that they could recognize me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would I would make an ask for a coffee introduction, um, make it really short. So you, I would usually ask for 20 because you ask for 20 minutes and someone will give you 30. Um, you ask for 40 minutes and people will be like, no, that's right. not happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, understanding that people's schedules are really tight, I would always ask for, for less time, hoping that I would get more time because once you're there, you build that rapport and relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, and, and you are thoughtfully persevering in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and why, why I say that is that sometimes sending an email every week, it's only going to get you on somebody's you know, bad radar when they're managing thousands of other emails and other areas. And so putting yourself in the other person's shoe is, is really critical. Um, and, and, and letting them know and acknowledging to them that this isn't just about you, um, that, that you understand that and that you're going to make it worthwhile for them. That's really helpful. In terms of the events, where people should go to network, I would say to people that they should think about the associations in their intended field. Like for me as a fundraiser, I joined the Association for Fundraising Professionals and Women in Development, and I met a lot of people through that. But for your sector, I mean, are there any key events where people that are affordable, right, that younger people can go to and try to make these connections? Um, you know, the diversity and inclusion space is really crowded right now. There's a lot going on. Um, so I would say um, there's the there's sort of the standard. It, it depends on also um, what what space within diversity and inclusion. So if you're interested in diversity and inclusion within media and entertainment, then there is what the studios and the and the you know uh, uh, big media companies are releasing. If you're interested in diversity and inclusion and legal, you know I would I would. I would say try to understand the industry that you're that that is most interesting to you, or if not, like attend events for these industries because they all host different programs and events. 
um, uh, you know, Diversity Inc. And there's, a, I, I'm drawing a blank, I'm sorry right now, but there's, um, there's a lot of, um, I'll tell you, there's, um, there's one newsletter that I'm incredibly proud of, and, I'm, and the, the journalist who runs it, I think does some of the best work in diversity and inclusion right now, and it's called Race Ahead, mm-hmm. um, and it's by Ellen McGirt, M C G I R T, and and she's it's basically a daily compendium of what's happening around diversity and inclusion across mm-hmm. different companies, and um, and with some material for leaders. It's called the Woke Leader um, nice. to help leaders think about diversity and inclusion. And why I think that's a, it's it's interesting is that. It allows you to develop an understanding of what the narrative is in this space, what companies are talking about, what are the issues that are pertinent to organizations, and then you can start thinking about, you know, what are the events or programs that you want to that you want to go to. Um, I, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, organizations like, you know, the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and, um, and you know, and uh, uh, MLT and, and Posse and organizations like that where. You may not be able to afford a dinner uh, at one of those dinners, but they host other events, local events that you can, you know, that you can get into. And so, and all of these organizations, the great thing is, thanks to social media, they all have social pages that you can go on and kind of figure out, like, how do I learn more about mm-hmm. this award? You know, do I want to volunteer? And I may not be able to to afford, if, you know, if you're starting out in your career, I may not be able to afford a seat at the gala. But if I volunteer for the event, I can take in the entire event and connect with tons of folks and I've, and I've actually met a lot of wonderful volunteers at these at these events who I, you know who I think are just you know it's really super creative and I'm like yeah you're working hard but like you just got to meet like super powerful people and connect with them and now they know who you are because you, you helped them to their seat or you know you did something um, you know sort of that helped that helped them mm-hmm. um, and that helped you stand out so so there's, I think there's a lot of creative ways but but fundamentally at the end of the day, I, I'm always remiss in answering this question because I think that you really need to sort of dig deep into like what is it that you're interested in? What do you want to learn about? And then once you figure out what it is that you want to learn about, then you figure out all of the social networking, uh, literature, engagement, folks, you know, sort of influencers in that space that you can start connecting with. That was awesome. You gave a lot of meat and I think would be super helpful for younger women today who are trying to find their way professionally. Can we talk a little bit now about personal wellness? How do you manage burnout and stress that comes with any demanding job? Oh gosh. Um, not always as well as I, as I wish. Um, I think that as you, as you become more senior in your career, the demands are higher, but also your, the power over your schedule and how you manage things, um, makes it a lot easier. So, so I have to say, like, you know, an example is today, you know, I, I had a really busy travel day yesterday. I got home really late and I took a look at my meetings and I said, I don't really need to be physically in the office today. I can take all of them from home. And just that extra hour of not having to, you know, rush through the day travel, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm able to devote better energy to you and the rest of my meetings today than had I gone in exhausted into the office and struggled. Um, uh, I, I believe in self-care a lot. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. Um, it, it is, you know, my prior, my number one priority is making sure that I'm raising a healthy, socially conscious child, and um, and that I, you know, that I'm able to spend that time and energy with her, and that I have a, you know, a really solid and loving relationship with my husband, um, who is an incredibly wonderful partner, and you know, you know, the, the center, you know, the center of it for me is both of them. Um, so, so I, I try to. Make sure that my weekends are about them because I know that my weekdays can get really crazy with work. Um, I commit to only one or two events, if at all, during the week um, after work, and so that I can make sure that I'm home for dinner, so that I can, so that I can satisfy that piece uh, of, you know, of my commitment to them. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I get a monthly massage, I get a monthly facial, I, you know, I exercise, um, and and frankly, you know, exercise is is, is incredibly challenging. Um, because when you're exhausted, then you don't have the energy to exercise, but then you become lethargic because your body is, you know, it's basically losing it. Um, so I, I try to work out three to four times a week. Um, Saturdays and Sundays are my most consistent days because they're the days that I can control the most. And then during the week, um, you know, I'll wake up at 5.30 and go for, for a jog. And sometimes when I really just barely can wake up, I'll just do some stretches. Uh, but I try to do that because I know that as painful as it is, and particularly for me, to get up. I, I'm not a good morning person. Uh, after it, I know I always feel 100% better. 
Um, so I, I spend time and, and energy on that. And, um, and then every once in a while, um, I, I, I'm, I'm an extrovert introvert, and I'm, I sort of sit on both edges. I get a lot of energy from people, but I get a lot of energy taken, taken from me, from, from folks. And so sometimes I'm, I'm comfortable, uh, and, I'm, and I've grown comfortable in my own skin at being a complete introvert and just sort of shutting down for a couple of days, just mm-hmm. sort of saying, like, I'm not, you know, I, I, I need to refuel. I need to recharge. Um, I can't say that I'm always good about that, um, and, 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 and usually the biggest indicator of that is when I get sick. <laughs> and and that's when I stop and I say okay now my body's telling me that I need to uh, that I need to pause but I try to be more proactive about that and, and mindful of finding the, the things that give me joy outside of work my, my my work gives me a lot of joy the the maneuverings of a job are never fun you know a job is a job mm-hmm. and um, but but my work and, and what we do gives me a lot of joy so I also try and hold on to those moments where you know like my cup runneth full because like yesterday was one of those days where you know, I looked around and I said, we're talking about Hispanic Latinx identity and we have America Ferreira, we have JC Polanco, who's an academic uh, from New York. We have Dr. Rhonda Gonzalez, another academic in, in African diaspora from uh, Texas. And um, Andrew Herrera, uh, founder of Remezcla. I mean, these voices and the fact that rarely did they agree on anything around the labels and who we were, uh, but knowing that we were building that and that, then we're, that this video is going to be on YouTube and it's going to be shared broadly and that we're, that we're shaping and reshaping perceptions of this really complex community. That, I'm going to, I'm going to ride on that for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to see that. So what does your actual day look like as you try to focus on your wellness? You wake up 5.30, you try to do a run. When do you eat? Oh, I, so I'm, I'm a big eater. So I eat all the time. And the dangers of working at Google is you have food everywhere mm-hmm. and really really good food um so and there's no such thing as a typical day but on an ideal day um i'll get up at 5 30 i'll go run for about half an hour um i um uh i come home i get dressed my husband actually manages the morning routine for us with my daughter um so wake up my daughter um i usually leave before they head out because he takes her to school so my husband takes care of the lunch uh breakfast he, he's that's that's his thing in the morning while I'm getting dressed and ready for work, which you know takes its own time. Um, right. uh, and um, uh, I head over to work. I usually either take the Google bus, um, which is awesome. a great to the office, or I'll drive depending on which office I'm going to. Mm-hmm. We have offices in San Francisco and in Mountain View and Sunnyvale, um, which are basically uh, for me, but the traffic can just be in there. Um, and then um, and then I have breakfast when I'm in the office. I'm not a big breakfast person, um, but but I. You know, I force myself, and once I have food in front in front of me, I'll you know I'll eat it. Um, so usually breakfast is oatmeal and fruit. Um, every once in a while, I'll try to some protein, eggs and whatnot. Um, and then I usually have lunch between between twelve and two. Um, when when whenever my schedule permits. Sometimes like today, I'm working from home, but I'm I'm in meetings you know back to back all day. Um, I'll you know I'll find five ten minutes to eat, and I've I've learned to be comfortable, even though I you know culturally. It, it, it pains me a lot, but I've learned to be cult, uh, comfortable eating in a meeting um, because if it's the only time that I have, then I'm sorry, I'm going to be crunching while you're talking because this is, I need to eat. Um, and then usually leave work um, around five or so, get home, depending whether there's an event or not. Um, because of commuting schedules in the Bay, most people leave really early because it takes them so long to get mm-hmm. home. Um, and so I'm usually home around six or so, six-ish or so. If I still need to answer a few emails, I will, but I try not to. Um, and have dinner with my family. My husband's usually who prepares dinner. I, I help. I usually do the dishes. Um, and um, and then help my daughter with homework because she's in third grade now, so homework is harder. Um, and then she usually goes to bed around nine-ish. Her bath is around eight, and so when she's at her bath time is when I check my email because um, I'm trying to catch up on email from the day. She goes to bed, and then I catch up on email for another hour or so. Um, and, um, and then one thing that I started this year trying to stick to except when there's good TV um, uh, I try to, uh, to read before I go to bed not on my computer but an actual book um, and so and then I try to be in bed by 10 30 because I have to start this all over again and I, I, need, I need I need a good six to seven hours I'm not someone that can maintain you know those four to five grueling hours that people pride themselves and being able to manage I, I physically can't. I need I need a good solid six to seven hours to be able to be a 
okay when I start. That's quite a schedule. Definitely we're around a lot of really inspiring, powerful women. And a lot of the women used to share that the secret to their success was having a really great partner in life. And it sounds like that's the same thing for you because being a mother and he's the one who helps out in the morning and then the evening, I don't know how you could do it all. And so could you talk a little bit about how you found the one and how you knew he was the right partner for you? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, I mean, I fell madly in love. So I, it's, it's hard to say that I knew he was going to be this person, uh, you know, 12 years ago when we started dating. Um, um, I think that it was for us, it was really about having values that were aligned. Um, it was knowing that it was someone who was, you know, who was going to be supportive of me. Um, and, and being, and, and we had a lot of conversations. I mean, we met, in you know in our early 30s so by this point you know our identities were pretty formed we you know we, we knew what we wanted and who we wanted to be um and we just we just have a real steadfast devotion to supporting each other um and he's an artist and you know and and i you know and i you know i have this corporate career and those don't always match but they're you know but they're they're different enough that it allows each of us to show up for each other in different ways um I'm, I've never been much of a housewife. I've never, so I, so I don't think it was, I didn't, I didn't need to change expectations for him. <laughs> he, knew, he knew early on that these were not the things that really get me excited. I love having a beautiful home and artwork and, um, and, and having a place where family and friends can come to, cause that's, you know, such a big part of my culture. Um, but I'm not the one that's really, you know, uh, you know, caring about that. So, um, I, I can't tell you that it was really that systematic other than I fell madly in love with someone whose values really deeply aligned with me and, um, and someone that I knew was going to be supportive of my aspirations. And then as, as our lives have changed, because having a child, getting married changes you, having a child changes you. And, I, and I've said this often, I fell in love with my husband all over again when he became a father because all of a sudden here, here's this, this person who, honestly, I, I, I realized the, the patriarchal, you know, sort of, uh, you know, gender, uh, gendered culture that I had grown up with where I, you know, I went into doing everything. I was like, well, I'm supposed to do all this cause I'm the mother and this is what happens. And he would, every once in a while turn to me and go like, really? I'm like, I'm the dad. Like I can do this. Um, and so to be honest, he did a lot more than I did in helping reshape my expectations of him. Um, and, and he's very keen on being an equal partner. Um, and I can't say, I, I, I you know, I, I'd be, I, I'd be lying if I said, we had conversations about what each of us was going to do. Actually, he would, he really, you know, at, at key moments in our, in our lives, I think he's, he's tested my, my cultural heritage and background of, you know, what men and women do here being someone that does diversity and inclusion, but in my own home, <laughs> I'm still, you know, feeling like I'm, I'm supposed to do everything. And, and a lot of that happened, um, you know, came from him. A lot also what we learned how to do was outsource. And so I, you know, Neither one of us cleans the house. We we're privileged and, and wonderful that we have someone that we can pay to you know to clean the house. So there were things where we both decided neither one of us wanted to do or had the time, and so we've outsourced those. So I think in some cases we outsource, in some cases we are you know these really it's fifty fifty. And, and and by what I mean by fifty fifty is not that we do everything fifty fifty, but it's you know like I said, he takes care of lunch, he takes care of breakfast, he takes care of pick up and drop off, just because our schedules are like that. Then, you know, I take care of our, you know, of our finances. I take care of, you know, our vacation plans. I, you know, so each, each of us goes and gravitates towards what, not only what we're good at, but frankly, what we like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we both have those conversations when we're like, well, I don't want to do that. And he'll look at me, well, I don't want to do that. And then we kind of sometimes have to decide, well, this, does it matter? Do we have to do it? Um, and sometimes one of us will begrudgingly do it and we don't want to. And sometimes... Uh, I'm learning too, and I'm learning this from my friend Tiffany. Because sometimes I'm, we just kind of look at each other like, "Well, it's just not going to get done." Yeah. <laughs> and we're gonna, and we're gonna be okay with that. So it, it's a long answer, but um, but I really do think it's around that 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 expectation and alignment, but also being open to what your partner can teach you. Mm -hmm. uh, he's he's taught me a lot from the from the beginning when we even got married um, in the Dominican Republic with an overbearing Latino family. My husband's uh, American, and my husband. Being so this was actually when he first demonstrated this. I, I wanted a very simple wedding, not a whole lot of foo foo. You know, my Latina aunts wanted like the world and bright flowers and whatnot. And unbeknownst to me, because he was trying to make the wedding perfect for me, 
there were so many battles where he fought and won against, you know, and it's hard to win against my, my strong-willed aunts, where he won, and, and he was really steadfast about this is the wedding Daisy wants, and I am not going to bother Daisy because Daisy has other things to do, and I want her to have her wedding, but you are not putting those flowers at that table. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he did that at his, you know, at his own peril. <laughs> challenging. Um, but those were early indications of both how much he cared and, and, and wanted to su support me, but also his own sense of this is the role that this is the role that I have as, as a partner, uh, which I, I which I think is really valuable. So I wish I could take credit for it. It's how he came. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm deeply appreciative about it, but, but, and I'm, and I'm also, and, and I recognize it. Listen, what he does as a father is his responsibility as a father. He's not babysitting. He's not doing something that's that extra special because he's a father. These are the things that he, that he does. But, but I also recognize and acknowledge it and, and I'm thankful to him and tell him all the time how proud and honored I am to be his wife and to see how he parents the same way that he tells me how proud he is of the work that I do and the days where I feel guilty about not spending enough time with him and Emma, um, he's the first person to say, don't be so hard on yourself. You're, you know, you're doing what you, you know, you're doing, you know, what makes you happy. And when you're happy, we're happy. That was great. And I know we have about six more minutes left and I have a few more questions, but there are a lot of people who have a notion of success as something very different than what it really feels like. And, and just looking at what success is and what we're taught that success is, a lot of us are taught, you know, make a lot of money, have this really powerful job, but on the inside, we don't know if those people are having horrible relationships or have really no relationship with their children or that they're miserable or how their health is. And so I love that you're sharing the full picture for what success looks like, that it is self-affirming and that it is about what you make it. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I remember when I was in high school, um, I don't know why we had an essay or something we had to write about what success is. And my teacher looked at me, he's like, so what does success mean to you? And I said, being happy. <laughs> and he just, you know, he looked and he looked at me, he's like, yeah, that's pretty much it. And, you know, my colleagues were talking about, you know, all these uh, jobs. To be fair and honest, at that point, I, my expectations were not necessarily that high. You know, I came from a working class family. Just going to college was, you know, a huge achievement and doing what I was doing. Everything that I've done has already been well above and beyond what the expectations were. Um, so I never, I, I haven't had a marker of like, I need to achieve all of that, but I've always had this strong sense of, I need to be happy. <laughs> I, need, I need to feel like, you know, I'm walking on this earth, um, you know, and not just in honor of my family and loved ones, but in honor of me too. And, 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 you know, and that, and that's not always carefully balanced. Be, you know, to be perfectly honest, um, but to me, success is when I look at my daughter, when I look at the relationship that I have with my husband, when I look at the relationship that I have with my with my family. Um, you know, this morning before I was talking to you, I was editing my youngest brother's college essay, uh, not college essay, a scholarship essay. He, he's already in college; he's going to uh, RPI next year. Awesome. Uh, but uh, but he's got a scholarship essay that my father on the other end is going like, help him write this because we need the money. Right. Um, and um, you know, and and I remember this morning when I looked at it, I was like. Ugh, you know, I have to help, you know, legend into this essay. But then I sort of looked and I was like, but that's my responsibility as a sister. Like this, this is, you know, and, and as a sister who's done this and who's, who's managed this. Um, and so my relationship with my brothers is really important. My relationship with my fathers is really important. So to me, that's, that's my top priority. And if all of that is good, then my mission in life and, and what, what moves me is to create access and opportunity for others. So, so that, to me, that's success. Um, the titles, yeah, they're really great. They help, you know, they're good for your ego. Um, and, and, and frankly, the more senior you get, the, the more scope and, and opportunity to drive deeper and broader impact you have. And so that's, that to me is success. How, how many, you know, how many more people can I impact? How, many, how much more can I, can I support? And then the monetary elements of it, which are real. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, when I think about it, I'm in the business of wealth accumulation for my family. Like that's, that's what I need to do because, because again, but it comes down to my family. It's, you know, the salary that I'm making, the equity I'm receiving, all of those very practical elements that every woman, young, middle and old should be aware of is, you know, what is this job doing both from a personal perspective, but also what is it doing from a future uh, perspective? How is it setting me up? to be able to do what I want to do when I'm older and, and in the case of my eight-year-old daughter make sure that she's set up for college and that she is comfortable and that she has something that she can hold on to when she is older 
that my family couldn't afford to do for me, but that they, they created the space and opportunity for me to be able to do that for my daughter. And so that to me is what success is. And, and I frame it as wealth accumulation when I talk about compensation, because I think we, we, we think too little when it thinks that we're like, we just want to make a lot of money. I was like, well, money for what? Is it to buy the fanciest bags? And listen, I love I love beautiful bags and I love beautiful shoes and uh, I love all that. I was like, and, and I want to be able to have the, the, the liberty to be able to do that. But for me, it's around wealth accumulation for my family and my community um, and being able to not be scared or ashamed of saying that. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. I love that, that perspective. It's, it puts other things in perspective about life. In these last couple of minutes, could you share how people could find you? Are you on Twitter? I am. I'm not a great Twitter person, but everyone. So uh, my my handle is Daisy Ad um, at Twitter, and I'm on uh, I'm on Facebook, but I try to limit those mostly to friends to be uh, fair. And then I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, everyone finds me on LinkedIn. <laughs> so um, so those are my my social media. And I'm also um, Lebo. Um, uh, uh, Label League. Yeah, the Label League. Sorry, I I always mispronounce it. But the Label League, um, I'm on the Label League and some folks connect with me through the Label League. I think it's an amazing organization uh, working with millennial women. Um, So I'm also uh, connected there. Awesome. Thank you. This was really great. I appreciate you coming on. Success and and, and I'm honored and thankful to be included. Um, I I can't wait to see uh, the final outcome. Wow. What a great way to wrap up Women's History Month. I hope this conversation with Daisy has inspired you as much as it inspired me. My five top takeaways that I think will benefit you tremendously as you start to build your career or if you are transitioning careers are, one, develop strong technical skills in whatever career you desire to enter. Two, learn everything you can about that industry from both a macro and a micro perspective. Three, build a strong and genuine network of mentors and colleagues. Four, reframe what success, in air quotes, means to you by prioritizing your happiness, healthy relationships, self-care, and, real talk, wealth accumulation for both your family and your community. And five, realize that some of the most successful people followed a non-linear career path, and you can too. If you enjoyed this podcast and you're listening this far, there are several things you can do. You can leave a rating or review. You can subscribe to this podcast. And you can visit our website at imeldafoundation.org where you can sign up for our mailing list and make a donation. Your financial contribution will support our mission to empower underserved girls to become global leaders through leadership development training and activities, experiential learning, cultural awareness, and mentorship. Wherever you are in this world, have a great rest of your day.